We're going to try to finish 1 Peter again. <laughs> it was supposed to be finished last week. But we're going to seek to accomplish that. Today we took some time to look at an overview of the book. Last week we looked at the testimony of Silas and the connection that you should have to his testimony as a faithful minister of the gospel, never in the leadership role, but always faithful in that ministry, whether it was with Paul on missionary journeys, whether it was being faithful in Rome while both Paul and Peter um, were uh, imprisoned. Uh, he was likely one that, was, that had the responsibility for their care to make sure they were well taken care of. Uh, we find him faithful whether he is in prison or whether he is uh, left back to kind of shore things up in one area of Greece while Paul moved on to another area of Greece. This was a faithful man uh, that uh, was entrusted by first the church in Jerusalem, then the church in Antioch, and then um, many of the apostles. And so we had that connection last week in reference to the message of First Peter, that uh, he becomes a real uh, example of what it means to follow after these instructions. We come now to verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter 5, and let's read that together. Um, as we proceed, it says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, we might very quickly um, just breeze through this, and I was tempted to do that last week, but it would not have been to your benefit to do that because so many times when we read these kinds of passages, that is exactly our response, is, well, these are just some salutations at the end that really tie up his, his letter and give us some a little bit of information about who it's directed to. But I think we have something much more important here to consider uh, in terms of one element of church life that needs to be addressed, uh, and we've kind of addressed it, well, we have addressed it previously. Remember that one of the major themes of First Peter is living out our faith in relationships. That we're going to uh, bring all of our relationships into uh, the context of our relationship with Jesus Christ that we're going to do that, whether it's with the world, how are we going to relate to them. We study that within the family, within the uh, uh, husband and wife and his children, and the extended family, within the church, with its leadership, um, with our fellowship. And we've looked at that extensively, and that's been of great concern to Peter. It shouldn't surprise you to find a reference to that at the end of the book. And in fact, we have that. And again, Peter is going to flesh out, live for us, and uh, demonstrate to us a little bit of how that looks in his context. And hopefully we're willing to now consider, well, maybe it should look a little bit more like that in our context, in our local churches. And when we talk about local churches, we usually reference, well, these are, this is Desert Hills Baptist Church. Uh, but we realize, hopefully, that in the early church, that just wasn't the case. Each community, that is each city, would have been considered a church. 
even though it represented many households that conducted services, and sometimes many pastors, as each one had leadership, we think, well, the church that is in Ephesus. Well, that wasn't one great big facility that all Christians got to um, every uh, Lord's Day morning. Rather, it was broken up into many places. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have facilities like that. They were meeting in homes. Uh, whether they meet, met staggeredly so that if they had not enough pastors, they could rotate and, and, and cover all of those, or whether they um, had sufficient men and in each pod, if you will, or each group within that church, would the house churches, the, 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 the smaller elements of that larger church, but yet had its own leader, and that all those leaders met together as well, because they function as a unit. And so our concept of church is probably very different than what Peter and Paul and, and John and, and James, who they're writing to. And so when we talk about the, the relationship here between the, those that Peter is addressing and those that Peter is with, those that Peter is concerned about. And so he is going to say, listen, you have a relationship there in your community uh, with the people of God. And so there, whether it's in Ephesus, whether it's in uh, uh, Philippi or, or uh, any of those other places, Derby, Lister, all those places in Asia Minor, in Greece, in, uh, in Israel, uh, in that region, in, the, in uh, Palestine. And, and so we have all of these um, you have your relationship there, but you also have a wider relationship that is part of the church. And in theological circles, we use the term universal church. Uh, usually if you read and you see a capital C there in, in writing, you will, that was referencing the universal or Catholic church. Now, I just used the word Catholic, and that's got you all up in arms probably a little bit. Did he just say the Catholic church? Yes. All the word Catholic means is universal. Um, it is unfortunate that the Roman Catholics claim that they are the only church. When they use Catholic in their name, they are saying they are excluding everyone who is not them. Okay, the word Catholic simply means a universal church. And so that's why you should always preface it. They are Roman church. Um, you don't even need to use that word, so we should be a little offended that they have taken over that term, but the, we use the term universal um, because we're afraid to use the word Catholic because they've kind of claimed ownership of that. And so we come to understand that the church is bigger than even a community of churches in fellowship with one another and working as a unit. Uh, we have uh, an obligation and relationship with the believers throughout the entire earth. And we're going to see that portrayed by Peter here. But that doesn't mean he's not also concerned about what's going on in the intimate relationships within your immediate fellowship, within those that you meet with week by week. And so we're going to see him address these relationships uh, in these last couple of verses. It's a high priority for Peter, and we're going to see it played out. And again, he's going to give his, add his own testimony. He has already described Silvanus as his faithful brother in verse 12. We saw that last week. We come now and we find that she who is in Babylon, and we're going to reference that here shortly, elect together with you, again, that connection to each other, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. I just want to start the end of this verse rather than the beginning. And I want you to see 
the terminology that is being used. And so now Silvanus, a person who occasionally I have ministry with, I knew him in Jerusalem, we're now in Rome, and he's been faithful in ministry in Antioch and with Paul in his missionary journeys. Uh, but notice the familial terms. That we come into this relationship among the believers and we find consistently these uses of familial terms. That we are a family of God. And so we find him saying, this is my faithful brother. We do not conclude then that they were blood born one. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. Rather, we find that this is an intimate relationship that I have with this fellow servant of Christ. We find then he goes on to a younger one. Silvanus is probably more of a peer. He goes on to someone who he has trained and participated in the development of his spiritual walk. And this is not unusual to Peter. Paul does the same thing with regard to Timothy and Titus, my son in Christ. And so he says, here's John Mark, my son in Christ. You have been studying in Sunday school, in the adult Sunday school class, the gospel of Mark. Well, this is Mark's, we often call Mark, Peter's version of the gospel. Why didn't Peter write a gospel? Matthew, Mark, why, uh, Matthew and John did. Um, why didn't Peter? Well, Mark is Peter's version. The John Mark that we're re referring here, the Mark, my son, is the Mark who wrote the book of Mark, and their relationship is very intimate. And so he says, listen, um, I'm going to greet you. Mark is still with me. He's still ministering. Remember that Paul in prison says, John Mark is valuable to me for ministry. Isn't it interesting that these two giants of the church are sharing these faithful servants of Silvanus and John Mark, that they are participating together with that? We know the relationship of Mark. Um, he started on that first missionary journey. Um, he, for whatever reason, he didn't finish it. He went home, whether he was homesick or whatever was going on there. Um, we don't know what that dynamic was, but uh, for that reason, Paul and Barnabas... Uh, when they, before starting the second missionary journey, were contending or whether to take him again, give him another chance. Barnabas says, let's give him another chance. Paul says, can't afford to do that. They divide. It's so sharp a disagreement that they decide, well, we'll form two different teams. And Paul goes to Silas. Barnabas takes John Mark. And we say, well, what happened? Well, we lose track of that in the book of Acts. But we find that here and in Paul's writing, we find that he was... Uh, Renewed. He was reestablished in ministry. And after we have just got done studying a few verses earlier, those four words, you remember the four words, the end of verse 10, to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you about being re-stood up, about being re-empowered. These are really uh, not words of initiation, but of, of restoration. John Mark, Mark becomes a great example of that. You know, he kind of failed in his first ministry opportunity as a young man, but he was faithful eventually, to the point that by the time these men are toward the end of their ministries, he is one of the heralded individuals of the church that was per persistent in serving uh, both Paul and Peter, was valuable to their ministry. But I want you to notice the intimate term being used here is, he is my son. And you'll see commentators, well, maybe he really was Peter's son. 
And, and there's no evidence of that. They might have had a, a, a regular familial relationship as we know it, but he's really talking about this, this uh, uh, intimacy that we have among the people of God. That those who are peers I look upon as my brother, those that, that are younger that we're mentoring, we look upon them as our sons. Um, and when we get to Timothy and Titus and the directives that Paul gives to you, listen, as a pastor, here's how you're going to treat older men as your fathers as, with that respect. Here's what you, how you're going to treat uh, older women. Here's how you're going to treat younger women. Um, and all of those are in the context of a family relationship. Now, familial relationships should be intimate ones. We hopefully understand that. I know we have a lot of, not all of you come from intimate families. But it, there's a knowledge, there's an acceptance, there's, a, there's this uh, purposefulness, there's, there's a level there that we relate to that isn't something we relate to others outside of the family with regard to. And so we see these terms being used um, within the broader church, that these are our family. And that this extends beyond just the intimacy of our specific church, our local church, or even our regional church, but, but internationally that we have that relationship. And so I can come to a, to a fellow believer in another country that maybe I see very rarely or uh, maybe you've just met and, and recognize that, well, this is a brother. This is a sister in the Lord. This is a son. This is a father. This is someone I'm going to honor and have an intimate expectation of relationship with them. And we find that both Silas and Mark here, uh, Peter uses those terms for us. He says, listen, these relationships, I'm not above them. Uh, this is my faithful brother. This is my, my son in the Lord. These are ones who are ministering to me. And they recognize their relationship that I'm not the only important person to you. These others also want to greet you. And so we, we recognize, hopefully immediately, that when we walk around, we talk about brother brethren. We are brethren. That that's a familial term. That means this is my family. And the world doesn't always understand that, but it sometimes alleviates some of the problems if it's done in righteousness and properly. Um, I've had uh, examples of people who, um, they're like, oh, you, you know, it's like, no, you don't understand our relationship. Uh, we're not interested. There's no, nothing going on between us as the world would look at it. This is my sister. And boy, as soon as you say that, oh, that's your sister? Yeah, sister, daughter, son, brother, father. Yeah, we have that familial relationship. This is not about what the world would impose upon it, but we are to be uh, representative of that kind of intimacy in those uh, relationships that we have one with another, that we are not just passerby uh, in the night, but that we are closely aligned with one another. That involves a lot of things to have an intimate relationship. It involves spending time together. It involves honesty. It involves communication. It involves all the things that makes families work. Now, if you're not in a family that works, you can work on that. You, you can read scriptures, and we can talk about that. 
but families that work, that's what's going to go on there. We're going to all carry our, own res- carry our responsibilities, but we're also going to care and be uh, alert and, and desiring to know what's going on in the other members of the family's lives. And we want to be included in that. And that should be going on within the church, not just locally, but even internationally. Then we're going to take it to another level. So we have that level where we have the individual's pulled out and we see the familial relationship we're going to try to build on that later on but before we do that let's look at the first part of this verse because it says we're going to send a greeting to you from those in Babylon now uh, the terminology here the reason he's using Babylon is likely because of the persecutions that are going on and so rather than identifying the church in Rome and kind of putting a finger on them he is going to use the concept of Babylon. Now, Babylon is the dispersion. This is someone he has talked to. Remember that this is the, if you go back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and we're going to be, might do this a couple of times, um, he is addressing this to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Glacia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he has really Asia Minor in mind, and so he's saying, listen, from those who are in Babylon, and Babylon is kind of a code word for that place of captivity. And at this time, we know that to be Rome. This is where he wrote from. He, he never traveled to the area of Babylon, of, of Iraq or Iran. He was never in those, Iran is really Persia, but he was never in that, no, to no degree do we have any information he was ever that direction. And so this is a code word that the church well understood that we are in a place where we are surrounded largely by unbelievers. But there is still a church here in Babylon. And while Asia Minor has, remember that Asia Minor was extensively penetrated with the gospel. Um, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas did extensive work there. We're talking about a place like, like Ephesus would have been the premier place that you think of of Lystra, Derby, I mean, you have all kinds of places through there, but you have a penetration there, and he lists them for you in Galatia, so the book of Galatians. So they have a, a pretty extensive opportunity for the growth of the church in that area. Um, we have many letters that Paul wrote to some of those churches, Colossians, uh, Ephesians, um, Galatians. We have these books we know that they had growing and, and very viable churches in those areas. And so he says, listen, um, I'm over here in Babylon. <laughs> You're kind of over there. And really the center of, of Christianity was during this time period kind of migrating out of Jerusalem and into the, into the Antioch and Asia Minor. It was really moving north there. There's also another movement more towards Alexandria, which would have come later, um, but it was kind of gradually moving up where Ephesus was going to become one of the hallmark places of the church. And remember what kind of effect Christianity had in Ephesus. Remember that little riot that went on? Little riot. (laughs) Tens of thousands of people yelling, uh, great is Diana of the Ephesians, because of the effect of the church was so significant that it was putting injury upon the economy of the silversmiths. 
So that's who we're talking about at being the recipients. So when Peter says, listen, I'm writing to this. You kind of feel like you're scattered, but you're really, I'm in Babylon. You're in the dispersion. Uh, we're not all gathered together in Jerusalem, because certainly they have a heart for that, Peter particularly, but certainly Silas uh, and Mark as well all come out of Jerusalem. And so you're, you're dispersed, but I'm in Babylon, uh, the, the capital of that dispersion, if you will, or even the cause of it to some degree. And so he says, listen, but we have a church here. She is certainly referring to the church who's in Babylon. Elect together with you. And we come into this concept that there is no distinction between these. We're going to see this a lot more next week as we get into 2 Peter. Uh, but there's no second-classness within the church. There is not a superior and an inferior body of saints within the church. And that is not only within the local church, but in the capital C universal church. There is no superior and inferior churches. And we, we come to most of those relationships in terms of international uh, fellowship, and we generally have a very... Uh, superior attitude, most American churches, when they send out missionaries, when they send out teachers, uh, when we engage with international, uh, with pastors and churches, often have kind of a superiority complex, where we come in and think we can call the shots and tell them how to do church better, and, 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 uh, and we presume somehow that because we have a, uh, more access to educational material and that because we have this generational history of Christianity that somehow we know how to do it better than they do. And I've seen it. I've seen it in multiple cultures, and multiple settings. I've seen it in Haiti. I've seen that perspective in Peru. I've seen that perspective in India. I've seen it even in Cuba where we have very limited access, but yet we go in there, and frankly, the, the national pastors there are very humble and are very um, responsive, generally, to any help that they are getting. Uh, but when I look at the attitude and the perspective of most Americans going in there, we are there to teach, not to learn. We are there to direct them, not to take directions. We are there, and some of that's the American attitude, well, he who has the money should have the authority, right? And so because we are wealthy, free people, that we are the ones that get to call the shots because we're funding it. Uh, and that is a horrific concept that should not be in the church, but yet it is uh, extensively in many churches. And so... We find rather, and in fact, when, when people find out how we're supporting national pastors, how do you keep them accountable? That's the very first question every pastor asks me. How do you keep them accountable? Accountable for what? For the money you send them. You send a lot of money to national pastors. How do you keep them accountable? I was like, I think God keeps them accountable. Who keeps you accountable? Who keeps us accountable? The same one who keeps us accountable keeps them accountable. But we never ask that question of ourselves, do we? Who are you answering to for how you're handling your church's money? 
You know, the JRBC doesn't do an audit of our church. Who keeps us accountable? God does. We're accountable to him. We'll answer to him. So will they. But you see, that attitude is, is that somehow because we fund it, we, they should have to answer to us. And, and, I, and some of these guys understand, uh, I mean, I've never asked for any of this. It's kind of interesting because Pastor Chetri, I think, is, is kind of, he sends me, when we were building the wall around the orphanage there and all of that, he would send me the invoices. I was like, you don't really need to do that. <laughs> They're all in Hindi anyway, so I can't read them. Um, but, and I have to sit there and convert rupees to dollars to understand any of it. But he wants to count it, and he's like, I have $7.80 left. I was like, so. <laughs> What do you want me to tell you how to spend $7.80? I don't know what you need. I don't really care. It's yours. I'm not here to control that. I'm not here to dictate to you what you need. Because we're equal. We are elect together. We are on equal levels. There is no second class. There's nothing that makes one more superior, one church more superior, one church inferior. Nothing. Not who has the financial resources, not who has the, the access to, to um, books and to education. Uh, we have privileges that really put greater responsibility on us, not them. To whom much is given, what is the rest day? Much is required. And all of this much that we have isn't something to lord over people. It's something to have as a burden that you're going to have to answer to God for all the much that you have, but yet we lord it over and say, well, you have to answer to us because we have much and you have little and we're going to tell you how to do this. Well, shame on us. The Bible speaks directly against that. Rather, we should look at them and say, we are elect together with you. We are not superior. You are not inferior. We are elect together. And so, I have things to learn from them. They have things to learn from us, certainly. We, we share that because we want to sharpen one another. We want to build one another up. We want to come to a unity of the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is our desire, our goal, not just for the local church, but for the capital C church. We want to share what God has entrusted to our care as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I think that's somewhere in Peter that we should be stewards. I'm just managing it. And if God has given me this to manage, I understand that the manager has to answer for a lot more than the one who doesn't have to manage all this stuff. We have to answer to God for a lot more. But we are elect together with them. And so just because they're in Babylon, they're in Rome, and they're in the seat of the Roman government that is about to pour out and is in the process of pouring out some persecution on the church uh, don't think that somehow they're inferior. We are elect together. And then I want you to see this greeting. And we're going to talk about greeting for a little while now. So he says, the church in Babylon, she who is in Babylon, greets you. She's elect together with you. So now we understand that we are one in Christ, that we are equal standing in Christ. We are elect together. That cannot be too emphasized, I don't think. 
that we are on equal standing. Now we are on equal standing. Listen, just because we have this, this spatial distance between us does not mean that we do not have a desire for intimacy together. We want to reflect upon this together. And so he says, listen, um, I'm writing to you, and, that might, and, and I know you, but I want you to also hear a greeting from the entire church here in Rome. Silas is going to be the, the agent through which this letter comes. Um, you know Mark, because Mark has been in your region, and you know him personally, so I'm going to name him. But listen, the whole church here wants to send a, a greeting to you. And this is something that um, I picked up internationally when you sent me out. And they had, that as I went to churches, they expected me to bring a greeting from you to them. And each one of them said, please send our greeting to your church. Every time one of the international pastors contacts me, whether it's through Facebook, telephone calls, emails, whatever it is, please send my greetings to your church. I should probably read them every week. Yeah, you hear some of you go, yeah, why don't we do that part of, the, part of the service? Always, please send my greetings to your church. It's a critical part to them. This kind of fellowship of the capital C church to remind us that this, that our isolated experiences is not all God is doing in the world. Because if we think that, we start getting discouraged. And some of these men are ministering in very difficult thing, areas where they have very limited access to anyone outside of their, of their uh, county or city. Uh, they don't have that access. And so uh, to send those greetings to have that contact is so important. They want to know what's going on. And, and it's kind of shameful for me because I don't take a lot of pictures and, and we should be. They send me pictures all the time of what they're doing. Oh, here we are. You know, we're having a birthday party and I get to watch. And it's a big deal. I don't, wow. You know, they send them to me on emails. They send me to me and, and they, they want to say, listen, we're a family. We're the extended family. This is the immediate family, but we're an extended family. Greet one another. Just because they're over there in Rome and living in a totally different uh, environment, uh, not a different culture, because our new culture is the culture of the Bible. And that's going to come out here really soon. And then, well, we want to send our greetings. And so whenever I go, um, and I should do this more often, uh, not going to other places, but I should do it in other communications uh, whenever I go and I'm physically in front of them, the first thing I do before I ever uh, start speaking um, about the, the, even God's word, about my relationship with the, the, whoever I'm visiting, um, any of that, the first thing I do, and I learned this in Cuba first, is I brought greetings from Desert Hills Baptist Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Because... To them, they always see me. But I'm there not on my own, am I? I am there on your behalf. Peter says, listen, I'm writing to you, Silas, Mark, these people you know, but we're not all there is here in Rome. 
we're representing a whole other part of our family that you just haven't met yet, but you know exists. Now, I know I have some family members in Holland, in the Netherlands. Um, they share my same last name, and, and, um, and there's not very many, okay? They're not very many around the, the, with that weird Dutch name, and, but I've never met them. I probably never will meet them, and I really, I'm more interested in my spiritual family, but uh, I recognize that somewhere back there, we're all related. Um, but I hate to tell you this, all of us are somewhere back there related, because you all have an ancestor called Noah, don't you? Okay? And so we all have that really. But this is a recognition that, listen, this isn't the only place God is working. We are not the definition of God's exercise of his grace and power and mercy and, and love on earth. We are one expression of it, part of a large family, and it is appropriate that we desire to see God, what he is doing in other places, and to let them know that we are praying for them, that we want them to see us and know us, that we want to send greetings, that we want to send, we uh, consider you our family. And that should be a part of our ecclesiastical experience. That I have this family, this is my immediate family, and I have a very large family, my extended family. And that's who they are. And, and I love my relationship with some of these guys. It, it, they're precious to me. And when they send me a message, when they send me an email, it's the first thing I read. But there are many others that I have met that I don't ever hear from again. Um, I, I've not really heard from the pastor at Somni or the pastor at Proto, but we saw their ministries. They're young men, and we appreciated them so much. I pray for them all the time. You hear me praying for them. Um, but we should. We should be recognizing that these are representative of this church. So should we be praying for the church of Ukraine? Yes. Should we pray for the church of Russia? Please do. They are in conflict, but the churches aren't in conflict with each other. It's the nations. And now these two bodies of saints have to figure out how to minister in the milieu of the nations raging. Just as you and I need to figure out how we need to minister in this raging nation. If you think this is not a war going on here, you're not paying attention. And so we have this relationship with other churches as well. Now, We've talked about all of that. Now we come into this wonderful verse where it says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And now we come into the intimacy of the local church. Not just as family, as brethren, but how are we going to greet one another? Verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love, and then we're going to talk about the peace to you. We have been 
pressed upon. No, I'm going to start differently. <laughs> As Americans, you require an enormous amount of space. Your personal space is almost triple what it is in other countries. And it's evident here. In fact, when I was in seminary, they taught us that if your capacity of seating gets up to 85%, you will not grow. Why? Because people get nervous if they're too close together in America. It's not true in other places, but in America. So I was taught, all right, I know I've been a pastor a long time. So I was taught, <laughs> make sure that you have empty seats so people can kind of feel comfortable because they'll feel uncomfortable if they're crowded. So if you, apparently that only happens at church though. I don't notice it at ball games and I don't really, you know, notice it at, at concerts but somehow in church, we get uncomfortable. I don't know why that is. Maybe we just don't like people doing that to us while we're trying to take a nap. Um, I don't know. So, but we, Americans in general, have an incredible bubble around them that, that, that is just part of being out here. And so we get real nervous if someone comes up and talks to us really close. Right? In fact, you guys are closer to me right now than most Christians are their pastor ever. Because they're, I mean, literally, the first row in some churches that I've spoken at is like beyond that wall. Okay? Between the platform and the first row people. And you have to go down multiple steps and you have to take multiple to get to the first row people. So we go to the national conference and we go like, and I sit in the back, I'm like, man, this is like a long ways away from them because we only have like five rows at the farthest point. So we have this tendency to want to our space. And what that does is limit our intimacy. It is a psychological factor that enables us to keep facades between us and people. And so we get nervous if someone's too close. And I remember when we went to... Now, there are other examples like I've already given to you, but I remember when we went on to the... Uh, in Boston, when we went on to... Right during rush hour, the three of us tried to cram ourselves onto it. And it was like, that's very uncomfortable where you're just, all right, if you exhale and I inhale, alternately, we'll fit. Okay? I didn't really want to do that for very long, and I noticed no one else really wanted to do that, and what I also noticed is nobody made eye contact with the person they were standing right next to. You all looked like this, and they looked down at their phone, just anything but looking right at the person that is actually full body contact with you. Because you're squashed. Okay? And even in that context, when you go to other countries, they fit so many more people in their buses and subways and trains than we do. Now, some of that's just because we're large. You know, okay, we're extra large people. Okay? Um, but they just have no problem with it. 
I remember sitting in Amsterdam and someone coming up and just sitting at our table to eat. Just because you were there first, you have extra seats. They don't mind sitting down at your table and eating with you. Because they're not really eating, you know, that kind of intimacy. They're just closer together people. And we don't, we're uncomfortable with that. We're kind of, why are you sitting at my table? Well, it's not your table. It's the restaurant's table, and we're sitting here because you have spare seats. There's only two of you, and there's four seats. So we're going to sit here too. It wasn't a big deal to them. It was a big deal to us. What are they? They're just going to sit down at our table because I'm an American. And I don't want that kind of, you're in my bubble, my eating bubble, which is no one's allowed, you know, inside this table bubble for my meal. What I want to communicate to you is that we are uncomfortable with the level of intimacy the Bible talks about in the family of God. That's our culture. That's the American culture that we have to overcome to get into a biblical culture. Now, that has been even exacerbated Would you agree? In the last two years. Okay? God wants us to have an intimate relationship, not just on a spiritual level, but even physically. That we are in physical proximity to one another. And I love one guy who says, well, it's really hard to lie to someone you just got done hugging. I said, well, you can do it. I mean, Judas did that. Brutus did that, right? Um, It can be done, but it's difficult. That there's a physical proximity, that there's a physical intimacy that that reflects something about our, our attitude towards one another. And when we bring in barriers and we say, you have to stay six feet apart, you have to put on this so I can't see your face, and recognize how you're relating to me, and you can't believe how much of your facial expressions are tied to your mouth, more than your eyes. All right, so if I'm sitting here in the nursery, and I see this kid over here. Okay, yeah, if I looked into their eyes, I could probably figure out that they're upset, but when the little lip is jutted out like two inches from their chin, I know that they're really upset, right? It's their mouth. And if I see that, so the mouth communicates enormous amounts, and we want to hide that. And for two years, we have told people, don't get together, don't be in physical proximity to another, don't show your features of your face. And we come to God's word, and we come to a passage like this that says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And if you think this is isolated, it's not. At the end of Romans in Romans 16, 16, Paul says, greet another with a holy kiss. At the end of 1 Corinthians, greet one another with a holy kiss. At the end of 2 Corinthians, greet one another with a holy kiss. At the end of Thessalonians, greet one another with a holy kiss. This is a repeated instruction for the church to maintain intimacy in your relationships one with another by physical proximity. Now, when I read through the early church fathers, which I did this week, 
Um, I read through every time they referenced this concept. Uh, here's how they understood it to be, and that is that all of the women should be minister should be in church on this half. All the men should be on church on this half, and that this physical contact was not between the halves, which meant that. We, men, would greet one another in this fashion, and you, ladies, would greet one another in this fashion, and that was how we worship together. We begin the worship by this intimate contact. We don't end it. We greet one another. This is the initiation that we come in the door, and now we have churches that have to have professional greeters um, because none of us take it upon ourselves to greet everyone that comes in the door. At all, let alone with physical touch. God has designed you, has designed you to respond to physical touch. Now, the scriptures are very clear that we're going to do it in a holy way, not a carnal way. This is a kiss of love that is of friendship, of, of, of a desire for an intimate relationship that is asexual. This is the command. This is not a, think about it, this is a command that you have this kind of contact, physical contact with one another. Probably the closest we come to that is occasionally uh, one of the men will come up and give me the, ha- the man hug. That's that half hug, you know, shake, hug, right? Uh, and, we, and that's pretty good. It's not bad. Um, it's better. Um, by the way, in other countries, they still give you a kiss when you come in. In Peru. Right? Bill's thinking about that. Did they do that? Yes, they did that. They didn't do it to us because we have our bubble. We were like... Is he trying to kiss me? In India, I remember the first trip we went there, my wife was just like, and same thing when we were in Egypt, she's like, everybody just gets too close. I'm like, you're an American. You know, maybe it's because I grew up having to share my bedroom with two brothers, so there's three of us in one little bedroom all my life growing up, that it didn't bother me as much. Um, but in India, they would come up and... Um, I remember walking, and one of the pastors came up, and he took my hand. We were talking, and when you take a man's hand to walk with him, you want to have a deep conversation. You want to have a substantial conversation with that person. So we're walking around, and he's got my hand. And, there, and so I'm, this is kind of weird. <laughs> but I learned. I said, well, he wants to have a significant conversation with me. And so I went up, and I, and as one of the other pastors that did this to me, so a couple of days later, I was trying to get one of these, one of our guys, not Philip, not Providus, the other one, Kiran, Pastor Kiran. And I just went up, and I grabbed his hand, because I was like, this is how you do it. So I grabbed his hand, and he's like, and as soon as I did that, he just gave me all of his attention, and he looked me straight in the eye, and he knew I wanted to talk to him. It's like, this works. This works really good. Okay. Later on, we were on the same trip on the on the trip, and we were going to the dedication service of Pastor Providence's church um, that has your name and my name on their building. We don't deserve our name there, but it's there. And so, 
as an honored one. But the night before, all these pastors were there, all these guests were there. They had no place to sleep. They had set up cots in the church, uh, so it kind of formed a dormitory. And, uh, of course, they put me in, in the only apartment that was there. They put Joyce and I there. So we were the only ones that had, because we're Americans, we need a bubble, even, even at night when you sleep. But I wanted to go fellowship with these guys. I'm, like, I'm not going to hide here. So I'm going to go, and it was all the men were in the door. I don't know where all the women were. Um, I just went with the guys in the dormitory that was the church. And Pastor Babu was uh, laying on his cot, and Pastor Premitus was sitting right beside him. <laughs> it kind of looked like, you know, he was dead or dying, and this guy was counseling him or something, visiting him. But they were just talking, and I'm like, I didn't see any other chair, so I went and I laid down next to Pastor Babu. I just laid it in his cot right with him, and he was like, and his whole demeanor changed. And it was like, you are one of us. And we had a conversation for over an hour in that position, the three of us. God has designed us for this. It is precious. And when the world wants to separate us, and we come to passages like this where we're supposed to be greeting one another, even with physical contact, that it is something of value in a relationship. If I had a married couple coming to me and saying, oh, we're having marital problems, one of the first things is that they're not having any physical intimacy. And the Bible has something to say about that. Don't let two or three days go without physical intimacy. Why? Because physical intimacy is an important part of having intimate relationships, of that value of touch. And so this instruction, and it is an instruction to greet one another with a kiss of love, with a holy kiss, is about having a physical intimacy that is uh, not just a picture of the spiritual intimacy, but it is an aid to the intimacy that we are called upon spiritually and in every other relational matter. Probably about the closest we get here is when I stand at the door and pretty much demand that everyone shake my hand before they leave. Just to have that, and I don't even care if you got a snotty nose or anything, I'm going to shake your hand. You might be concerned about who shook your hand. If you're worried about that, be first in line. Who did Pastor just shake hands with? I don't know if I want to shake his hand now. It's because you believe in the modern germ theory, which is all messed up. And no, I don't have uh, alcohol wipes there between every person. Because I don't believe in the germ theory. So, we should have that kind of physicality to our worship. And we can't even sit together. Look around you. By herself, by herself, by herself, by herself, by himself, couple, couple, couple. We could take down half the chairs. <laughs> There's a lot of kids missing. I know we, we dismissed like a third of the church just a little while ago. Yeah, I understand that. But the nature of our worship isn't shoulder to shoulder. And there is great value. Remember that the other thing Peter was concerned about wasn't just your relationships, but standing fast. 
How are you going to stand in your faith? It is not better to stand by yourself, not only spiritually, but physically. And any general, any commanding officer knows this, that I want my men to stand together. That when I spread them out, there is a propensity of them to fall. If I mass them, now we have a force that has to be reckoned with. And so we find this engagement of understanding that part of building an intimate relationship with these, my family, my brothers, my, my sons, my, my fathers, my, my spiritual sisters, my, uh, I, requires more than just, hi, how are you doing? Behind a mask. That we should have that physical contact and that expression of it in the physical world of what's going on in our spiritual world, how else will we know it? How else will we develop it? And so Peter is concerned that you stand fast. And he says, listen, part of that is you need to be greeting one another within your local church. We can't have that physical contact with the universal church. I don't get to have that relationship and that conversation with Pastor Babu and Pastor Premitus. I can't do that now. I can't go up and, and have that contact with Pastor Cyrus that we had for that whole week. I can't rub shoulders with them. And that is the old world expression for having a conference is rubbing shoulders. It means that we're going to get together, we're going to press ourselves into a small little room, and we're going to engage in something substantial. And yes, physical proximity is part of that. That we should be trying to sit as together as much rather than filling all the sections somewhat evenly, though sparsely. Oh, that we would recognize that this is not just something to skip over, that's just cultural for them. Now, am I expecting all of you guys to show up at the door on the way out puckered up? No, I'm not really expecting that. But put in your mind that we ought to greet one another um, more substantially than the world wants you to because Satan always wants to isolate, not just spiritually, not just emotionally, but physically isolate you. And that's what's been going on for two years, and we've seen the disastrous effects of that on people's lives. With relationships completely destroyed within nuclear homes, within friendships just obliterated to the point that we have a suicide rate that's just unheard of. We have a, a psychotropic drug problem now because of isolation. It's not just wrong for people dying in hospital rooms to be isolated. It is wrong for any man to be isolated. We are a family that is called to intimacy, that we are brethren. And as brethren, we have a responsibility to one another to, yes, to make that physical contact and say, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my son, and I'm not afraid of that. 
And then we have one more command, and I have no time. <laughs> for, I, can't, I can't wait another week to get rid of, to get rid of, to finish First Peter. The final element is peace to you. And I know that Mr. McKillop emphasized that in the saying, it's, it's, it's the culmination. This is not peace between you and God. He's talking about peace to you, plural. That we have peace. That is, that we have a relationship with one another that is settled. That I can move about in confidently and be who I am, knowing that you will care for me, you will correct me, you will defend me, you will, you will kick me in the pants if I need that. That we have that that. that substantial of a relationship that we can be at peace because really the opposite of peace is contention that we are in disagreement all the time and one of the benefits of that of that even of physical contact of familial intimacy is that we will hopefully produce peace in our relationships with one another in the immediate context of the church and in the church universal that there is a a, not that there's never any problems, because every family has problems. It's addressing them in a manner that the outcome is peace. That this is a home of peace. And you'll hear me pray for that for all of your homes. That our homes be places of peace, of safety, of godliness. That that should be one of the characteristics of a godly home, is that it is peaceful, and I find it fascinating that one of the things Satan wants to bring into your home is a cacophony. That's a big word. All right, Elizabeth, I'll help you out here. Evelyn, you ready? Cacophony. Noise. Lots of noise. I'm not talking about the noise that children normally make. That annoys me. To, I mean noise. Background noise that I go into homes and I can't even have a conversation because they won't turn the television off. They won't turn off the little device in their hand because they have to have this constant noise. They won't turn down the radio in the vehicle. And it's like, can we have some peace to have a relationship, to have a conversation, to engage one another? Because we're afraid of silence. We're afraid of peace, aren't we? Let's be honest. Most of you are afraid of peace of those silent moments in a relationship where we think and consider one another and what someone else just said. We say, oh, I have to think about that. Usually we're just talking without that peace in our relationships. So this peace here is not reflecting the peace with God. It's saying the peace of God is here should be to you that we are expressing it one to another, and its connection and its uh, association with the idea of this physical intimacy can't be overlooked. They go hand in hand. Because truly it is hard to be at war with someone that you hug on a regular basis, that you are willing to sit shoulder to shoulder with on a regular basis. It can be done, but it's hard. But what is even harder is trying to be intimate with someone you're never around. And you're going to stay six feet away from you at all times. Or more. Can't build a relationship like that. And so 
these kinds of instructions, we usually relegate, well, that's just socially, that's just what they did back then. I, I don't see it because it's still going on in our world today. And when I see it at work among God's people, I see a great benefit that I probably would have never seen if I didn't travel internationally and visit my brethren in other lands. And I thank you for that exposure that you've given to me. And so I'll be greeting our brethren on your behalf this week. And hopefully from here on out, and I'll be bringing their greetings to you more often. I enjoy it. I'm sure you would as well. Even if it's just those words that Peter wrote. She who's in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You've brought us into a community of faith. Of saints who uh, have peace with you and know you as Savior and Lord and want to serve you. And Lord, we know that part of our endurance as believers is to stand together. Thank you that you've made us all your elect. Your chosen ones to receive the same benefits of salvation that we can learn from and grow from one another equally. Lord, we pray that we might minister your love to one another in every respect. Might do it in a righteous, holy manner that brings glory to your name and benefits your people, that we might stand firm together with each one here in this local assembly, but also with our brethren throughout the earth. Many who are facing things that we, frankly, have never faced. Lord, we pray for them. Pray that you might encourage them of the knowledge that your work persists throughout the earth. That your name will be glorified. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.